It seems incredible, but 38 people heard or saw the murder of a young woman, Catherine Genovese, in New York in 1964 and did nothing to help her. Didn't call the police, certainly didn't go to her aid. One man leant from his window and shouted, leave that girl alone, but the murderer simply slunk off and then came back a few minutes later to finish her. This happened in Queens in the 60s and became a famous case. Not because of the killing, of which I'm sure New York had plenty, but because of the terrible apathy of the witnesses. 38 people did nothing. Lots of commentators piped up after the murder to say it showed the terrible effects of living in this soulless big city. This is modern life, this is New York. But it was... Nothing new, arguably. One of the most infamous murders of all time, the final Jack the Ripper killing in 1888, had two supposed witnesses. Mary Kelly was killed indoors in her own bed and two of her neighbours were awoken at the same time during the night to a cry of murder and both did nothing. Even though everyone knew, the world knew that there was a serial killer on the loose in Whitechapel and Spitalfields. They did nothing. Now, was that apathy? Or maybe it was self-preservation. Maybe they thought, I'm not going outside if he might be out there. Or, as some have suggested, maybe they just thought it was no big deal. Because there are always shouts like that in the middle of the night. It's Spitalfields in 1888. What do you expect? Just a few feet away from where those women were lying was Dorset Street, which was known as the worst street in London, where apparently policemen were afraid to go. Maybe that's why they did nothing. But the fact is, people can see attacks, they can hear dreadful cries for help, and they can just turn over and go back to sleep. But when the disaster that's happening is yours, what then? What happens when you're not listening to the screams from afar, but you're the one doing the screaming? In the aftermath of your own horror, surely you wouldn't also lapse into that same apathy? If you survived, that is. If you survived an attack, um, a rape, an earthquake, a, a concentration camp, a war, how would you react afterwards? With joy at having survived? With relief, with a renewed energy for life, a determination to make each moment count? Or is that just chirpy motivational crap fit only for Instagram? No, those who have studied the human reaction to disaster have said we'd tend to react just as the witnesses in Whitechapel and Queens did, with apathy. We'd just psychologically turn away. This is called disaster syndrome and today we'll look at the studies on disaster syndrome and how we were all expected to behave in the aftermath of the biggest disaster of them all.
Whenever I watch threads, I always wonder why Ruth keeps going. I suppose it's because she's pregnant, and then, of course, later, because she has a child. Because otherwise, why would you bother? Where would you find the strength, the mental and physical strength, to get up and live another day in the post-nuclear landscape? If it's parenthood that keeps her going, then we see the same message in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, with the father surely only keeps going so he can protect and defend his son. So, without the child, why wouldn't you just give up and lie down? So I see both of these characters as suffering from disaster syndrome, and they're only kept from collapsing into apathy because of the parental instinct. They need to stay alive and alert to defend the young. So what is disaster syndrome? Studies have shown that people behave wildly in disaster and in a variety of different ways. Panic, terror, trying to run, irrational actions. And then in the immediate aftermath, when the initial danger has passed, joy at having survived, confusion as to why they lived when others died, and often a sense of guilt at being a survivor. But these behaviours, they all tend to give way eventually to disaster syndrome. And when that hits, all those furiously energetic responses, the, the crying, the panic, the running, the mad efforts to survive and find family, they all give way to apathy. Victims of disaster syndrome often seem emotionless and robotic. Now, why is this? There are three main theories to explain this terrible apathy. One, and this is one that I can see a lot of sense in, is that the victim enters an apathetic and emotionless state as a form of defence. It's like they're holding up their hands and saying, no more. They've suffered enough and can take no more. And so they close themselves off to other, more normal or more predictable pains and stresses. It's like they're psychologically turning away, giving horror the cold shoulder, saying I cannot take anymore. Another idea to explain disaster syndrome is that it's a form of wishful thinking, like saying if I remain calm and cold and still, then so will the external world. It's like a child hiding under the blankets so as not to see the ghost in the corner. If I don't see it, then it's not real. Another theory is that maybe it's just plain old helplessness and confusion. I don't know how to respond to this new and crazy situation, so I freeze. After a nuclear war, one of the government's main tasks, and that's if there is a functioning government, is to control the population. To maintain law and order and get us working again, make us productive. That'd be a hard task after any large-scale disaster or war, let alone a nuclear war. 
So let's make it even harder for them. How can they exercise control over a population where some towns have been bombed and others haven't? Some are smothered in fallout, some aren't. Some are invaded by hordes of terrified and starving refugees and others aren't. Some have clean water, some don't. Some are in radio contact, others have none. And now add another element to the mix. Some of your population are stricken by disaster syndrome. And some aren't. Those areas which haven't been bombed, but have heard the warnings on the radio, will be in a state of high tension and anxiety, wondering when their turn is coming. Others will have already endured the attack and will have entered the dreadful apathy of disaster syndrome. So there'll be no such thing after nuclear war as the survivor, a typical survivor. And so there'll be no single policy or approach or instruction which will cover every person, reach every person, get through to every person and be accepted by every person. I suppose that's why in nuclear war films we often see the very blunt tool of food being used. If you don't work, if you don't follow this instruction, you don't get any food. So there is no single approach after a nuclear war which will reach every single person or be accepted by them. Because everyone will be in such varying scenarios. I suppose we see an element of that just now with coronavirus lockdowns. The southwest of England seems relatively unscathed, but the northwest of England certainly isn't. And so now we're hearing of complaints from northern English towns, and quite rightly I think, that they shouldn't be dictated to by a one-size-fits-all rule from London. But there might not be a government in London after a nuclear war. There might not even be a London. As we discussed in previous episodes, central government before nuclear war, if there was sufficient warning, would splinter and the country would be run by little pockets of government in each of the regions. And they would have to deal with an equally splintered and divided population. Some rural and untouched, some urban and pulverised. Some under fallout, others relatively untainted. Some survivors angry and demanding help and aid. Others under disaster syndrome, utterly apathetic and unable to make decisions. Try governing that law. Now, if we're talking about social control and law and order, you might think the government would love us all to have a bit of disaster syndrome. Weak, apathetic people, unable to make decisions for themselves? Well, doesn't that sound like a perfectly pliant and obedient population? Surely they'd rather have that than an angry, rioting mob? In normal times, yes, but after nuclear war, all their usual rules are torn up. In normal times, you could control your prickly, angry, rioting types with threats of prison or fines. In nuclear war, these things are suddenly meaningless. You can't find someone who has no money. Even if they did, money is meaningless now. It's just strips of paper, little discs of metal. And prison, you say? Well, prison would be quite a good deal after nuclear war. 
That means you get a bed and a square meal and you're sheltered within big thick stone walls which keep the fallout away. So you can't control the angry types after nuclear war with the usual measures. Instead, the only way to control them is to go back to the most basic human need, food. If the government can retain control of food stockpiles and take control of any surplus food already out in circulation, then they can control you by saying if you don't behave and do your chores, then you get nothing to eat. And yet, would that work on someone blunted and battered by disaster syndrome? Can you wave a bit of bread under their nose and say, you won't get this if you don't do your work? They might just shrug and turn away. They're lost in a deep apathy. They do not care. And if they don't care, it means you can't control them. So it was in the government's interest to stop panic and apathy after nuclear war. But they also had an interest in stopping it before nuclear war even happened. Let's scoot back to America in the 1950s and look at Project East River. This was a huge research project, began in the Truman years, which looked at the American public's psychological response to the nuclear threat and how the silly public's fear and anxieties might damage America's nuclear position. After all, if the population were terrified of nuclear war, then they wouldn't be effective when nuclear war came, and there would be no public will to threaten or fight nuclear war. They might even start agitating for nuclear disarmament. Shocking. The project had two main conclusions to combat the American public's nuclear fear. The first was that people should be taught through simple and practical civil defence techniques to think of themselves as trained personnel. Don't leave it to the soldier or the airman. Mom and Pop and little Sally and Jimmy are also part of the system. They too can be trained and equipped with skills and knowledge if war comes. They might not be flying planes or brandishing weapons, but they'll be trained in civil defence and they'll know first aid techniques and they'll have prepared a backyard shelter and they'll have a stockpiled larder. By training the population, you alter their mindset. You make them, in theory efficient and involved and they roll up their sleeves and they get busy and this involvement in civil defence and the practical knowledge it brings with it will drive away apathy and anxiety. The other big recommendation from East River was to try and change the way the public perceived nuclear weapons. Now whether you agree with nuclear weapons or not, whether you think it's a good thing, whether you think the deterrent works, surely we can all agree that nuclear weapons are horrific. Well, their effects, of course, are horrific. They can vaporise you, simply vanish you from the face of the earth. Those less fortunate 
may find their skin hanging in ribbons, that their eyeballs have liquefied and run down their cheek, that they lose their hair and teeth and begin to suffer hideous vomiting and diarrhoea and begin to bleed from every orifice. Whole cities can turn to ash. Whole cultures and all their fine literature and clever inventions and the intricate language and manners and architecture, everything gone. Of course the nuclear bomb is horrific. And if we're talking about an all-out nuclear war fought with hydrogen bombs, the effects become so horrific that they probably go beyond the imagination. But Project East River wanted to change the public's perception. Instead of thinking of them as monstrous, as these terrible new creations which seem to threaten life on Earth, East River wanted to conventionalise them. They wanted the American public to see them as just very big bombs. Just the same as the bombs dropped on Berlin and Dresden and Tokyo in the war. Just like every other bomb. Sure, they're, they're bigger and they're more destructive, but they're still bombs, you know. Calm down, people. And of course, when the atomic bomb was overtaken by the hydrogen bomb and when the threat of fallout became clearer and when hydrogen bombs of 100 megatons became possible, Project East River would expect us to say, look, they're just bombs. Keep your hair on. So onwards and upwards, worse and worse, more and more, until there is nothing left but dust. And in the midst of the dust, the last survivor shrugs and says... Well, they're just bombs, really. My thanks this week goes to my two newest patrons, Anne-Marie McCann and Stephen D. They both signed up this week. Remember, they're the reason why you don't have to suffer ads on this podcast, because I earn some money each month through donations on Patreon. So please do consider joining us if you enjoy the podcast. As long as I have my patrons, I promise I'll never subject you to adverts here. Although I'm sure you'll forgive me for advertising my own book when it's out. And indeed that's a reward available on my Patreon page, getting your name printed in the acknowledgements section of the book. Because of course through Patreon you're helping fund my nuclear research and nuclear work. So please do take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me also give a shout out this week to the following patrons. Pete Appleby, Tom Higgins, Holly Seddon, Ed Carter, Adam Gilmore, The No Name Kid, Craig Bushman, John Haynes and Yannick. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Monday.